the Ten Commandments in the Shorter Catechism. We've looked at the uh, doctrines that the Scriptures teach, and the principal teachings of the Scripture are what man is to believe concerning God, and then what duty God requires of man. So we completed looking at what we're to believe concerning God. We're now looking at the duty that God requires of man. So we've looked at the Third Commandment. The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now to say the name of the Lord thy God in vain, that has reference to treating it as something that is unimportant, that it is not substantial, not weighty, not to be treated with respect, but used in a light way. That's the basic idea of taking God's name in vain. And then the Lord adds a reason Why is it that you should not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Because the Lord will not let people off the hook. He won't say, oh, I'll pretend like that's okay and you didn't do it. No, he will not hold him guiltless. Even if men don't punish us, God says he will. Question 54, what is required in the third commandment? So we've looked at this before. The commandments tell us certain things that are required and then certain things that are forbidden as they're explained through the Catechism. So this has to do with the duty that God requires by the Third Commandment. First there, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, the Scriptures read, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So here we see, rather than taking God's name in vain, God requires of us that we give something unto him. Now, there are different ways you can give something to somebody. In Scripture, you can give somebody something they don't have before. You can give them a present. You could give them money. You could give them lands. That's the idea of giving. But in this context, we can't give anything to God that he doesn't already have. So when we're told to give God the glory that is due to his name, that means we are to say or to demonstrate or to ascribe in our worship, in our words, in our actions, glory to God. That's the idea. We don't give him something extra. We ascribe something to him that is suitable. Now, taking God's name in vain is the opposite. It's taking away the glory that belongs to God. So here he says that we're to do it in the beauty of holiness. This is how we treat the name of God. This is the glory due unto his name, that we in holiness and in reverence and in awe give glory to God with our tongues, with our lips, and with our lives. Psalm 61 verse 5. The Lord says, For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Fear is reverence, respect, and being afraid to offend. So here, God's people are specifically referred to under the title, those that fear God's name, God-fearing people. That's the idea here. But notice the name of God, we're not just, not just to ascribe glory to God in holiness, but also in reverence. So there's the fear of God, and there's the beauty of holiness. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names. 
And then number two there, the third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names and titles. Now a title of something is where we say this is thus and such. This is the theater, for example. And then they'll have a title for it. This is Regal Cinema's Theater. They give a title to a thing to ascribe some attribute or some ownership or some kind of thing that you don't otherwise know. It's put into a title. Notice here, uh, Revelation chapter 15, there are titles given to God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Now those words together give us a title of God. He is the master. He is the ruler and creator. The, uh, the mighty God. And then he has all power. <clears throat> Almighty. He has absolute force to accomplish whatever is in his holy will. Whatever is consistent with his glorious nature. So that's a title. Lord God Almighty. Then he says, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. There's another title. God is not only the Almighty Lord, he's also a king. He has the power to legislate. He has the power to defend. He has the power to preserve. He has the power to crush enemies. He's a king. And his kingship, his dominion, is exercised specifically over the saints. So this is a title of God. And then it goes on. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord? Now, remember, Lord God Almighty was a title. So is Lord. So is King of Saints. And then he goes on and says, And glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. So here we see in Revelation 15 that the, the titles of God are used in a holy and a reverent way. It's not taking God's name in vain. It's not using them as unimportant. It's not using them as if they weren't weighty matters, but rather there's a holy and a reverent use made of these titles of God. So not just the name or names of God, but his titles as well. Now, Jeremiah 10.7 uses a different title for God. Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain. Forasmuch as among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. Okay, so the title here, by which God is to be feared is the king of nations. You have all the wise men, the philosopher kings that rule over the various nations of the earth, all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms. He says none of them have kingship that's universal. They all have these little kingdoms. Even Alexander the Great, even the Roman emperors, it doesn't matter. Their kingdoms were limited both in scope and in time. And they also could not command the internal affection. They could only command the external compliance. So God is the king of nations. And as such, in that title, he is to be feared. And it's to be used with holiness and reverence toward him. That's the idea here when it tells us that we're to use God's titles in a holy and a reverent way. 
Then number three, the third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes. Now, attributes are where we recognize something about God. When you have an attribute of the table, it might be wooden. You could tell me how long it was, how wide it is, how tall it is, how many drawers it has, what color it is, how much space is underneath, how many legs it has. Those are the attributes of the table. It describes for you what that thing is. The Bible gives us lots of attributes of God. It tells us a lot about God so that we can understand who he is and then properly relate to him in worship and in obedience and in faith. So here we're to use God's attributes in a holy, in a reverent way. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So here we see the proper use of God's attributes is to give glory and honor to him. And not just for a small amount of time, not just every Sabbath, but all throughout eternity, God calls on us to give honor and glory to his attributes. Okay? Now, eternal means something doesn't have a termination point and doesn't have a beginning point. Strictly speaking, eternal is above and beyond the temporal order. So God is that. That's one of his attributes. God is also immortal, meaning he's incapable of dying. He cannot cease to exist. He cannot be killed. He cannot be abolished in his existence. He's invisible. You can, you can see him with the eye of faith or a mental vision, but you can't see him with the eye of the flesh. That's what that means. God can be seen by faith, but he cannot be seen by your eyes. He is invisible. That's why we don't make images of God, because this is one of his attributes, invisibility. Then it says, the only wise God. God has absolute and total wisdom. He knows all things. He also knows how all things work. He knows what may happen on certain conditions, what will happen because of his decree. God knows everything, actual and possible. He's wise. So these are attributes of God. They tell us things about God. And we're to use these attributes for his glory and for his honor. And we're to recognize that as Paul tells Timothy to do. This is what God requires in the third commandment. And by the way, we'll get into this in the sins forbidden. But you see how evil it is for people to use attributes of God like holiness to make swear words or cuss words. When people talk about holy this or holy that or to take God's attributes or some of his titles even, and to bring them down into the mud of human filth and conversation is completely out of the question. God requires that we use his attributes in a holy and in a reverent way. Okay, number four on page two there. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances. These are God's uh, ordained institutions, in other words, especially his worship. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting at verse 1 there. The Lord says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. In the house of God, we saw this in Psalm 122, that's where people would go to worship God and where he would govern them from the temple. 
It's where they would sing his praise, call upon his name, offer the sacrifices, and the priests would then do the worship on their behalf as well. But there were things that they would do also. So this is the house of God. When thou goest to the house of God, keep thy foot, he says. And, he says, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. So when they went to the temple, it wasn't just that they watched things happen. It's that they received instruction from the Levites. The Levites were to give them the law of God. They were to instruct the people in the truth of God's word. So he's saying, when you go, you can be a fool and offer your sacrifice, or you can listen to the priest and hear the word of God from the prophets. You can be instructed in your faith. He said, choose rather, when you go up to worship, to hear what the priests and the prophets are telling you, not to be a fool. Then he goes on, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Okay, so this actually has to do with taking vows, making promises to God. And he gets into more detail in this passage. Don't go up and start talking. Go up and start listening. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, James says. And this all within the context of God's worship. Vowing is an act of worship. Going up to the house of God was preparation for the acts of worship. And hearing the word of God, that's an act of worship. So these are God's ordinances. Then verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Don't put it off. You said you're going to pay God, you better do it. Now there's an illustration in the life of our father Jacob. You remember when he was at Bethel, what did he vow to do? Anybody remember? If God brought him back to Bethel, he promised God he'd do something. He'd build a house for God. He'd take tithes of everything God gave him. And he'd build there a house where that stone was that he slept with his head on it. Now, when he got back from Laban all those years later and God prospered and blessed him, did he pay his vow? No, he deferred to pay it. And then what happened? Then his daughter got raped. Then his sons went and attacked the Shechemites. And then Jacob woke up and said, we're, we're going to be holy to the Lord now. I'm, I'm done with this. You guys take off all your earrings, wash your clothes, get rid of your foreign gods. We're going to Bethel. He paid his vow. So God says, when you make a promise to me, don't put it off. Don't defer to pay it. When you make an act of worship and an ordinance of God, use it with holiness and with reverence. Come to listen. Come to hear the priests. Come to hear the prophets. When you go up to the house of God, don't utter things rashly with your mouth. And when you make a vow, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. And verse 7, For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities but fear thou God. Don't be vain in worship. Don't be light in my ordinances. Don't make a vow you don't intend to keep. Don't draw near to speak and utter your vows that you're not going to keep anyways. Come to hear the word of God. Be instructed in your faith. These are the ordinances of God. You're to use them in a holy and a reverent way. That's what he's saying. And then Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
verses 23 and 24, the Lord says, Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image, or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Okay, so the the aspect that we're dealing with here is the ordinances of God, and that's what he's referring to in part when he says the word covenant, the covenant of the Lord your God. He's specifically referencing the second commandment, and you see that by the contrast. If you respect the covenant of the Lord your God, you will not make a graven image. That's what he's saying. But because you're going to tend to forget this, you have to take heed to yourself. Lest you forget the covenant, that is the commandments of God, his ordinances for you, and you say, well, I have an ordinance that I'm going to do. And I know God hasn't commanded me to do this. In fact, he's forbidden me from doing this. But I'm free to do this thing. I'm going to make my work of my hands, and then I'm going to worship God by the work of my hands. God says, no. I am a consuming fire. I'm a jealous God. And when you use my ordinances, use them with reverence and awe, or I will send the fire of my judgment to destroy you. That's what he means when he says, I'm a consuming fire and a jealous God. He means I'm going to destroy you with the fire of my anger. And so we must use God's ordinances with reverence and awe. Hebrews, well, and you, some people actually believe that that's just Old Testament. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I mentioned this earlier with reference to serving God. And remember, there's an indirect service of God by which we keep his commandments respecting our neighbor, or the second table of the law. That's worshiping God indirectly by saying, God, you've told me how I'm supposed to relate to this person. So out of respect for you, I'm going to do what you've said respecting my neighbor, my husband, my wife, my children, my friends, my enemies. I'm going to do what you've commanded me to do out of reverence for God. But when he talks about serving God, that's meaning the direct worship of God. That's meaning actually entering into those acts of ordained worship, his ordinances. And we come before God and we engage in those ordinances. God does not accept all worship just because it's pleasing to us or it's sincerely offered or it was handed down by tradition or we came up with it and thought it was a good idea. None of those things are reverent toward God's ordinances. None of them are the holy use of God's ordinances. Rather, when we have reverence and fear, the fear of God, we remember that God is a consuming fire. And when the apostle says that, you know what he's doing? He's pointing us back to passages like Deuteronomy 4. And he's reminding us that the reason why God is a consuming fire is is because he is a jealous God. It's part of his nature. It's one of his attributes. 
And when people try to worship God in a way that he hasn't commanded, what does that fire do? Well, it burns up the worshipers, doesn't it? Remember the strange fire that was offered by the sons of Aaron. What happened to them? Fire. What happened when they offered up in their rebellion of Korah and they offered up incense on their little censers that they thought they should be able to do this too? Fire came down. And so you see, God is a jealous God and he's referring us back to the Old Testament that we must observe the second commandment, but we must also observe the third. We must have reverence and godly fear when we use the ordinances of God. When we serve God, he requires that we come to hear what he has said and obey what he has commanded. Not that we offer up our words like Solomon was talking about in Ecclesiastes 5 and we have our visions and we have our own dreams We don't want to hear what he has to say. And if we make a vow, we won't really keep it. We'll put it off. No. You draw near with reverence and with awe, he says, godly fear. And that's how the grace of God directs us in worship. And what's interesting is many people put the fear of God and the grace of God as if they were antagonistic to each other. You notice he says that the grace of God leads us to have reverence and godly fear. All right, number five. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word. Okay, Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple. And praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now this is significant in a couple of different ways. One is it tells us that the name of God, we shouldn't think of it in like a a syllable snatching way. Oh, well, the name of God just means this, Jehovah, like the name. Don't say the name like the Jews. They do this. They say, Well, we're not going to say that name, so we'll call it Hashem, the name. That's what that means in Hebrew, Hashem, Haz, the, Shem is name. So they won't say the name Jehovah, they'll say Hashem, because they say the Bible forbids us from saying the words Hashem. Well, is that what the name of God is in Scripture? No, that's just a superstition. That's a petty superstition. God says that his word is part of his name. That the scriptures themselves are part of the name of God. Because God's name represents himself, his authority, his sovereignty, his dominion. So therefore, when we're talking about not taking his name in vain, we're also talking about not using his word in an empty or a vain way. Not taking his word in vain. Because among the things that are identified in the Bible as God's name... His word is exalted above all his name. All the rest of his authoritative revelation of who he is, the word of God is at the top. Psalm 56 verse 4. The psalmist says, In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Verse 10. In God will I praise his word in the Lord Will I praise his word? If you've ever read Psalm 119, you realize that the psalmist actually says that he raises his hands to the word of God, that he here 
praises the word of God. Now, this is very important. Some people say that if you believe that the Bible is an authoritative word, that you're guilty of the sin of bibliolatry. You worship the Bible. Well, David did that right here, right? And in Psalm 119, the same thing. Acts of worship, the faith of a believer. Here, the praise of God's people is all directed to his word. Because remember, God's word is exalted above all his name. So if I'm to worship God's attributes as I worship God himself, if I'm to have reverence and awe in his ordinances, I must also have reverence and awe toward his word. I also should offer the same kind of reverence that I offer to God to the Bible. Let's put it in that light. Because the Bible is God speaking to us as if we heard an audible voice from heaven narrating the whole thing to us. That's what the Bible is. That's how we should think about it. And therefore, we ought to reverence it. We ought to speak the word of God, not for uh, jest, not for insult, not for our own purposes, but rather we must use the word of God with reverence and with holiness. Okay, page three, number six there. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Job chapter 36, verse 24. Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Verse 26. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. For he maketh small the drops of water. They pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which the clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. Now here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we actually have knowledge that people would later codify hundreds, thousands of years later, they'd figure out what the Bible already said back in Job 36. And that is that God causes little tiny drops of water to go up in terms of vapor and to organize themselves in clouds and eventually to drop down. God had said that. That's one of his works. And man cannot completely understand. He can describe what he sees, but he can't really understand, well, how exactly does that work? We can still describe maybe more of how it works, but we can't quite get to what is it that actually makes these things work this way. We know that it does work this way. We can describe how it works. We can tell you exactly the temperature that it takes and the content of the water and how it collects up there, but we really don't know that much. But God says, magnify God's works. Remember to make them big. That's the idea of magnifying. Don't think small thoughts about them, about the works of God. Think highly of the work of God and this being the work of his providence after he instituted the created order. He holds it all together and he operates it according to laws, but still it's under his direct divine control. Remember to magnify the work of God. That's what he says. So even in the works of creation and providence, we have to use a holy and reverent use. We can't contemn God or be despisers of God. One way that people despise God is they try to use his works to blaspheme his name and to become atheistic or pantheistic 
and say, see his works here? God can't actually exist. That's an abuse of the works of God. God says, no, use my works in a holy way, in a way that shows respect and honor for me. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. For out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Okay, so the psalmist wants to tell us the greatness of the name of God. And he says you can find it somewhere throughout the whole earth. That's where you can find the greatness of God's name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That includes his works. Because here he tells us that the excellence of God's name being declared throughout all the earth has a couple of different ways it expresses itself. One is... You have little tiny babies that God will silence his enemies through their voices. That's one way. He confounds the wise with the foolish. He takes the babes and the despised and the offscouring of the earth and through their folly he confounds the wisdom of men. This is 1 Corinthians 1 in a nutshell. God takes the wisdom of man and makes it foolishness. We also saw this in 2 Corinthians 10. God takes the high things and he demolishes them with the shriveled old little Jew who goes into the synagogue and preaches the gospel there at Corinth. Paul, the weakness of Paul, showing the strength of those mighty weapons before God. So we have the mouth of babes and sucklings, God using that to take his enemies and cast them down, stilling them so that they cannot bring vengeance on the people of God. Furthermore, there's another work. God has made the heavens. He's ordinances for the moon. He has ordinances for the stars. He has all of these heavenly bodies. He's ordained seasons. He's ordained the growth of vegetative life on earth to sustain the life of man and beast. He's done all these things with his fingers. He has accomplished the work of creation. He upholds it by his power. The ordinance of God is obeyed. This is a great work of God, isn't it? And what does it declare? The excellency of God's name throughout the whole earth is known by his works. And so therefore, God requires, as part of the third commandment, that we, in holiness, in respect for his name, that we use, in those ways, his works of creation, his work of providence, And the specific things that he does. So we talked about this actually previously. That in uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. He shows us how when God judges the other nations. That Israel was required by seeing God judge the heathen. That they ought to repent. So they saw the work of providence. And were to study God's works of providence. Not in an idle way. Merely to relate facts. But in a practical way by which we learn how to glorify God by seeing him execute vengeance on his adversaries, by seeing him silence the enemy and the avenger, by seeing that all of these glorious heavenly bodies are like a little finger 
of God that caused them to be, that holds them in place, that ordained all those things. So we see that the third commandment does in fact require that we use God's names, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, and his works in both a holy and a reverent way. And thus far for our study, let's pray.